it's fascinating that everybody's looking at these lagging indicators, you know, to say, well, look, the economy is doing fine. They're looking at GDP and they're looking at employment. These things are all, you know, classic lagging economic indicators. So if you yeah. want to look in the rear view mirror, yeah, things look great, right? But if you're looking forward, you're looking at leading indicators, all of them are pointing to not just the high probability of recession, but a significant possibility towards the middle or third, you know, third quarter of this year of, of a pretty significant one. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart. Market uncertainty has returned as bulls and bears remain locked in a fierce battle for control at the S&P 4000 line. Who's more likely to prevail? And will 2023 provide a relief to investors over the beatings they took in 2022? Or will it prove to be another bruising year? Researcher Jesse Felder has been tracking the macro and market action closely of late, and we're fortunate to have him return to the program. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Adam. Hey, Jesse, it's always fun when you're on the program. Thanks so much for coming back on. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Um, number of questions for you, but, but let's kick it off with the normal high-level question I like to ask you at the start here. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, I think we're in this in-between phase, right? I mean, it's uh, monetary policy famously works with long and variable lags. We've had a very rapid tightening of monetary policy. And because we haven't gone immediately into recession, this idea of a soft landing, um, which always comes around at this time point in the cycle, has gained some traction. It's even gone so far as, you know, to people talking about no landing, right. um, you know, but, uh, you know, if you look back, I think The Economist had an interesting article on this where they, they pointed out the soft landing term, the phrase dates back to 1973, when, uh, you know, we were kind of in that in-between phase there too, where the Fed had, you know, tightened a bunch, recession hadn't started, but almost immediately, Right after that phrase was uttered by the, the powers that be, uh, you know, we went into a very painful recession. Stock market cratered. It had already declined some in 73. 74 was the most painful part of that bear market. Um, you know, the, the term soft landing came back in, uh, you know, the, or 2001. We saw a nice stock market rally uh, into the spring of 2001. And people thought, you know, maybe this tightening, um, the Fed, you know, tech stocks had cratered enough and maybe the Fed had done enough to kind of slow down the economy without creating recession. That proved, once again, to be overly optimistic. Same thing we saw in 2007, even into early 2008, this idea that Fed tightening, uh, you know, had done enough, but not too much to create a recession. I think, you know, the idea of a soft landing this time is even more ridiculous than in those previous sentences. The, the, the reversal in monetary policy has been much more dramatic, right? We, the, a year ago, we were at 0%, uh, you know, funds rate, and the, the, the Fed was just starting to slow down uh, and, and, and reverse quantitative easing. Um, Today, we're almost at 5% on the fund, Fed funds rate. So we've had a dramatic tightening. That doesn't you know, have, have uh, an immediate repercussion on the economy, but it will. 
And, uh, you know, all of the leading indicators that I look at it, and it's, it's fascinating that everybody's looking at these lagging indicators, you know, to say, well, look, the economy is doing fine. They're looking at GDP and they're looking at employment. These things are all, you know, classic lagging economic indicators. So if you yeah. want to look in the rear view mirror, yeah, things look great, right? But if you're looking forward, you're looking at leading indicators, all of them are pointing to not just the high probability of recession, but a significant possibility towards the middle or third, you know, third quarter of this year of, of a pretty significant one. So, uh, you know, I think that we're in this in-between stage uh, where you have a, a level of optimism that's just not not backed up by the you know leading indicators. Okay, great jump off here. Um, so if we can, let's dig into this lag for a second, because I've mentioned it on this program many times, but it's funny, um, you know, right now, Powell is basically telling the markets, you know, what he's going to do. And the markets are basically saying, nah, yeah, we don't believe you, right? <laughs> he's right. saying, I'm going to be higher for longer. We're going to take on pain. Um, I'm not going to pivot early. I'm going to hang out probably for the full year, if possible, um, once I pause. Markets completely not buying that right now, right? And so it may be a matter of the markets, I guess my question is, is the markets simply hearing what they want to hear and just kind of ignoring everything else. And it sounds a little bit like that's what you're saying, but let's let's zero in on this lag thing for a second, because Powell has been talking about the lag, right? Um, but the markets clearly aren't hearing it uh, or aren't believing it or you're just ignoring it, right? But the the lag, and I've heard different estimates on it, but it's sort of somewhere between nine-ish to months to 12 months, which means we're only just now beginning to see the full effects of the very first quarter point rate hikes that the Fed did, you know, almost a year ago. And we have the, the vast majority of all the tightening that's been done to date still to slam into the economy. And it's going to be slamming in in these rolling waves, right? Because you know, it was months between each of those rate hikes, right? So um, we have we know we kind of almost have this beating coming to the economy. Right. Um, yet everybody, like you said, is looking at the lagging indicators and saying, "Oh, these are the green shoots we're all waiting for. Everything's going to be great. We're going to have the soft landing, the no landing, or I'll call it the Sam Sneed landing." Sam Sneed was a famous golfer, and he bragged that he could uh, land a chip shot on the green like a butterfly with sore feet. Right. Like just this <laughs> yeah. incredibly gentle landing. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first, how how important is the magnitude of the lag effects that are coming here? Um, markets, like I said, is, is saying, ah, I'm not worried about them. Is that is that the wrong attitude to have? It's you know, it's probably the most dangerous attitude to have for for investors, because you look at at uh, you know th this point in the cycle, um, and you know I'm going to transition from from kind of macroeconomic stuff to just pure technical analysis. Um, if you look back at the major stock market peaks, um, going back to the 73, 74 top, you have kind of a rolling over of prices where you kind of form a range of prices. You break down below a support level. You rally up to test that support level from below. And that, in technical analysis, is probably the, the clearest, most picture-perfect bearish setup you could imagine. I call it the long kiss goodnight because you're basically kissing former support, now resistance, from below. And it's just kind of like the kiss goodbye before prices roll over into the most difficult part of the bear market. 
Now, I, I just wrote a, a report on this this topic because um, it goes back to when I, you know, almost 30 years ago, I had uh, just graduated college before I went to work at Bear Stearns. I thought I might, you know, interview uh, as a script reader for, for Hollywood. I interviewed with an agent at William Morris, and he gave me some scripts to read and said, tell me what you think of these. One of them was that movie, The Long Kiss Goodnight, with Samuel oh, L. Jackson really? and Gina Davis. And it hadn't come out yet. So I read the script. I handed it back to him. And I said, this is crap. He gave me a handful to read. I said, this is crap. And he goes, uh, we actually just paid $4 million, a record at the time. <laughs> we just paid $4 million for that script. And it's going to be our biggest budget project over the next few years. So clearly, I didn't get the job. Yeah, but yeah. I felt vindicated to to an extent because the, the, the movie didn't bomb but it certainly was a disappointment, um, you know, for Hollywood. It didn't make nearly as much money as they had hoped. And I think that's kind of a, a good metaphor for investors today is they're buying stocks. You know, you have retail flows coming into these big tech stocks. And we can talk about the unique characteristics of the, the paradigm shift in big tech today. But you have them coming in thinking this is a terrific buying opportunity. And really what's what's going on is they're kissing their capital goodbye over the next few months, because I think this is a classic bear market rally right up to these these key uh, resistance levels, uh, which represents, uh, I think, a terrific selling opportunity. Um, and so that disappointment that Hollywood felt over this screenplay, I think, is a good metaphor for what investors are going to feel when they realize this uh, wasn't a wonderful buying opportunity at all. In fact, it was a classic bear market rally and uh, an opportunity to to lighten up a gift really to, to to bearish investors to reduce equity exposure. All right, yeah, and and I think people forget like that is the role of a bear market, right? It, it's to punctuate itself with these ferocious bull rallies inside um, the bear market that suck everybody back in, right? That make them feel like the all clear has been given, and then the bear returns and mauls them even more, right? And We've had some, you know, quite veteran investors uh, and financial advisors on this program who have been through many market cycles, and they've said, "Look, you know, a bear market ends when nobody wants to touch a stock again, right? You have that that sentiment capitulation, right, where people yeah. have just said, i 'I've been so badly burned, I don't even want to think about getting back into stocks.'" And they've said, "We just haven't seen that this cycle round, which is why they're one of the reasons why they're so confident that." If indeed this is a bear market, it's got further to play out here. Um, so um, you're sort of nodding a little bit as I'm saying that, but but you know we've yeah, I mean, people the, the sentiment... looking for the bottom to jump in. We haven't looked at them, you know, in walking away in disgust. Yeah, I've never experienced personally or even heard of a bear market low that bottoms with record retail flows into the most speculative names in the market. And bottoms with record call buying um, in stocks like Tesla. And in general, I mean, we saw just a, a week or two ago, the volume in calls hit an all-time record. And so that type of speculative, um, to me, this is a, a little bit of an echo bubble, right? You had the the, the bubble, the, the meme stock blow off in 2021 and, and tons of money just flowing into these things. And uh, this little thing I think we've seen since the beginning of the year is kind of an echo of that behavior. We've seen a lot of these meme stocks take off again for, for no reason whatsoever, other than the fact that there's tons of call buying, creates a gamma squeeze, creates short squeezes, shorts have to cover, retail investors are emboldened. I mean, classic bear market kind of stuff, really. Interesting. Yeah, I've been I've been saying recently, we've been trying to to 
give attention to both both sides of the argument here. But I, I have recently kind of resorted to saying, I can't really make a bold argument except that stocks are going up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the only beyond the tape itself, it's hard. Yeah, that, that I that I can think of, and it's one that I I try and keep in mind, is the the possibility of what the Austrian economists have called a, a crack up boom. Mm-hmm. You have uh, inflation takes off and out of control, and investors bail out of dollars into almost anything else um, to try and avoid the ravages of inflation. Now that is, you know, I, I think we we saw, you know, corporate revenues take off as a result of inflation of the last couple of years and, and other, you know, dynamics. But I don't think that, uh, you know, we're seeing that just yet. I mean, that may be down the road. That type of right. uh, type of an inflationary, well, thing. especially because we're seeing disinflation right now, right? Like exactly. you would expect that type of crack up boom if you were seeing continued inflation, where the rate Absolutely. of inflation was growing, right? Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, all right. Well, look. Um, so uh, I guess first, just to, just going to put you on the spot and, and you're making it clear you're prognosticating here. So I'll let you come back on the channel and change your mind if you like. But do you have confidence in Powell's hire for longer? Uh, you know, I, I think we have to talk about this, this concept of hawkishness. Right. Uh, I think everybody said the Fed is so hawkish and it's true that they have raised rates dramatically. But we have to know know that this came from, you know, one of the most probably the most dovish policy. I mean, absolutely the most dovish policy we've seen in our lifetimes. Right. I mean, lowest Um, interest rates in recorded history from what I've heard. Yeah. And and you you listen to people like, you know, Stan Druckenmiller and, and whatnot, and they say, you know, inflation's never come down without the Fed funds rate going above headline CPI. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're 6.4, whatever on CPI, and we're still not even 5% on Fed funds yet. So, you know, I I think, yes, that, uh, you know, the Fed, I, I do think Jay Powell wants to keep rates higher for longer, but I think we're already starting to see signs of distress. These are some of these other leading indicators we're seeing. Corporate bankruptcies hit the highest level since 2010, you know, in the mm-hmm. wake of the financial crisis. We're seeing auto, consumer auto delinquencies, same thing, highest level since 2010. We're already starting to see cracks in credit. And I don't think Powell is, uh, you know, there's a big uh, fiscal discussion here too, where we're already seeing, uh, you know, fiscal revenues go into decline. Right. Uh, we have a five more, you know, five percent uh, fiscal deficit to GDP, uh, and the you know budget office tells us that's going to be just growing indefinitely. I mean, into the future without a recession. We get another recession, we could see it, you know, another 10, 15 percent uh, deficit to GDP. These are the things that I don't think we can afford as a, as a country. And so, you know, what what Powell, I think, really should be trying to do here is, you know, raise rates even higher, create a, a, a recession that really does put the nail in the coffin of inflation and then bring rates right back down again, because, uh we can't afford higher interest rates. Um, what this, I think, boils down to is I think we're going to see negative real interest rates for a long period in the future. I think that's probably one of the, the safe bets. I, you know, I, I recently wrote a market comment about 
central bank speed wobbles because I think that's what we're in. If you've ever, you know, ridden a bike or a skateboard downhill really fast, you know what the speed wobbles are. Yeah, you get to a point where you, know, you start oscillating and you're going to crash. Right? Uh, if you do not take very calm, uh, collected action to kind of bring things back under control. And I think that's where we are in terms of the inflation picture and central banking is inflation and the economy are oscillating faster than monetary policy can react to it. Mm -hmm. right? Monetary policy works with a long, long lag. Right. And sorry to interrupt, but and not yeah. that we have a great track record of monetary policy really ever being ahead of the game. Right. Yeah. And and I mean, we, the, the Fed fell so far behind the curve when this inflation picked up that now they're ramping up and they're probably, you know, stepping on the brakes too hard. I think they're going to create a recession this year. And then they'll probably have to cut, you know, cut rates again, very much like in 74, 75 and allow inflation to take off again after that. And they're just going to be in reaction mode. And so, you know, 40 years ago, whatever, uh, Paul Volcker got us out of this situation, just like, a, a, you know, an experienced, you know, biker, you know, cyclist would by, you know, very calmly, you know, kind of bringing your body, you know, in, in line with the bike and allowing the speed wobbles to kind of just work themselves out. He, you know, But he raised rates to, you know, 20% or whatever and held them there and created a very painful recession and all that. And I don't think Jay Powell even has the ability to do that. So I think we're in this period of, you know, like I call it central bank speed wobbles, where we're going to have inflation spikes, we're going to have recessions, we're going to have all these types of things. And I don't think we have a Fed that has the the will or the ability to really effectively deal with it. So I think it's going to have to come back this time to fiscal authorities um, to, to rein in the deficit somehow. Um, and that is, <laughs> is very, very problematic. For, yeah, sorry, um, sorry to laugh. I just markets I just in the economy. Right? I mean, you know, this is why I, I think Jim Grant phrased it best recently. Um, you know, he said, uh, you know, voters. You know, the reason we have inflation is, is voters vote for it, politicians, you know, and implement it, and, and central bankers endorse it. And in a democracy like we have, uh, you know, this, everything kind of trends in this direction. Um, but it it probably will get painful enough to where we're going to have to make some some choices here um you know down down the road uh but you know i think in 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 the short over time the the real i think the conclusion that i have the most confidence in is that we're not going to be able to raise interest rates up to levels that are commensurate with the inflationary type of environment that we have in a sustainable way and so we're going to have negative real interest rates for a prolonged period of time. And, uh, you know, that's in, a in, dramatically in, different in, investment in, environment. In tandem with that, do you expect higher inflation than we've had? I mean, it's absolutely possible, right? I mean, what I think the biggest worry for the Fed, and it should be, and the biggest worry for all of us, is if the markets, if, you know, currency markets, if, uh, you know, asset markets come to the conclusion that Powell doesn't have the tools, have the ability to really deal with inflation, uh, that's when things will get, get problematic. That inflationary mindset will take hold. Psychology will take hold. And, uh, you know, the dollar could, could really suffer and, and we could have that type of a crack up boom that Austrian economists kind of warned about. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not even necessarily talking about a crack up boom, but when you say negative real interest rates, that basically means that, you know, that that's um, Fed funds rate less CPI is negative, right? right. 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, across the curve, right? I, I think right. even, you know, the 10, 30-year treasuries are are not yielding as much as as the sustainable inflation rate, inflation rate, whatever that is. Right, right. So if we're if we're negative, we could be negative, you know, with a massive crack-up boom uh that's going on. Although the Fed would really have to be well, well, yeah. Um, but uh but we could also be negative just hanging out at I mean, we could hang out at five and inflation could hang out at six, right? And we'd sure. still be negative, right? I, I just don't think we can fiscally afford to hang out at five for very long. Well, I don't think we can, I mean, yeah. So the interest expense, you know, that associated with that becomes problematic. And so this is this is where, you know, if we're going to maintain five, six, seven, eight percent deficits and the debt's going to grow that rapidly and we're going to have to pay a five percent interest rate on that, you get into, you know, yeah, I, this is, uh, you know, when you have Larry Summers, you know, talking about potential for a debt spiral and you have, you know, a former Treasury Secretary, right, talking about these risks, these are things people have to pay attention to. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I am not an economist. I don't know. But I understand what a, how a debt spiral happens. And, and I think that the best case scenario here would be for, you know, and I think this is why people like Mohammed Alarian have said, you know, I, I'm really disappointed the Fed didn't keep raising at 50 basis points because it it suggests Tom Tom Honig, you know, to, former yeah. uh, you know uh, Fed governor, FOMC or Fed president. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Fed president. Um was saying that the the fact that they downshifted to 25 tells you that the bias is towards uh towards easing still. Still, there's still not, I mean, you know, the 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 Taylor rule says they should be at 10. We're not right. even at five yet. So there's there are all these these problems with you know uh, with where we are at. I mean, you could still say we're, we're still not hawkish enough. Uh, you know, and and I think that what would have been way better is if Powell had gotten ahead of this thing and raised and aired truly aired on the side of hawkishness. Now that they're not, it opens it opens up these these possibilities of a debt spiral and things, which I which are frankly you know frightening. I I don't know how to put any probability on it. I just know that I better be aware of it uh, in terms of how I'm managing my money. All right, absolutely, and we're going to get to the money management part in a bit. Um, but um, reason why I'm zeroing in on this is when you said you didn't think that Powell was going to be able to necessarily go higher for longer. I, I know it's multifactorial, but but I, I believe it's primarily the debt concern that, that's got you most worried. Yep. And, and I, I want to contrast today's environment to the 70s, because back then we had a much smaller debt burden, right? Oh, yeah. Much smaller debt to GDP. I mean, the debt, the national debt was was infinitesimal compared to today's, right? And people forget that in just the, what, you know, 12, 13 years from the, the great financial crisis, the U.S. federal debt went from something like $9 trillion to over $32 trillion or whatever where we are now, right? So we're so much more limited now uh, because of the debt burden, right? And the economy's become a lot more financialized as well. So to your point, like you're like, I don't even think the economy can can sustain at 5% or, or higher Fed funds, right? It, it, it very well may, may not be able to here. So what I what I hear you saying, and correct me if this is wrong, is, is you are saying, I believe you're saying, um, which, which a number of other folks in this channel have too, is I think Powell is serious about higher for longer. He just might not be able to play that playbook out as long as he would like to because something systemic is going to break under the weight of these higher interest rates that he's going to be forced 
his hand will be forced to rescue. And, and I'll let you respond to that. But yeah. to me, what's what's so backwards about the market's current thinking is the market is saying, yeah, pal, we don't think you're going to do higher for longer. We think you're going to pivot sooner. And a pivot's going to be awesome because then we're going to go back to the world we had 2010 to 2021, where I think the reasons if Powell is forced to pivot for the reasons that, that it seems that you think he is, that's going to be crisis. Like that's not going to be a bullish environment for stocks. It's going to be pretty terrible. Hey, absolutely. That's a, And that's a great point is if you look at stock market returns after the first rate cut, they're terrible. They're terrible. The Fed was cutting all the way through the financial crisis. The, the Fed was cutting all the way through the dot-com bust. And so this idea that investors have that uh, a Fed pivot is going to be bullish this time is, is asinine. Um, yeah, especially, sorry for interrupting, but especially because there's still that, you know, quarters long slamming into the economy effects of all those rate hikes. So it's like, yeah. You're, yes, you're putting your foot in the gas, but you still have all these this breaking that's hitting the system. So for a good long while, it's just collisions. You're not making progress bringing things back up. Yeah, absolutely. So there's there's two indicators, leading indicators that I pay very close attention to, that I think are uh, you know one of the reasons they're they're so valuable is is very few other people are actually look at them. One is uh, you can create a composite of the dollar interest rates and oil prices. And this has a, this composite has a two-year lead on the economy and corporate earnings. So when you have the dollar rising rapidly, you have interest rates rising rapidly, oil prices rising rapidly, it results in a, in a recession and an earnings bust roughly two years later. And you can say the, the same in reverse too. When you have the dollar tanking, interest rates tanking, oil prices tanking, that creates uh, you know, a, a real boom two years later for earnings and the economy. So you know, we really need to start, you know, that kind of, I think, emphasizes that point uh, of, you know, once interest rates start coming down, it takes a couple of years to really work its way through the economy. And that's because you think about, you know, corporations refinancing and all those kinds of things, right? That takes a long time for to, to have an effect at people refinancing mortgages or whatever. Um, the other indicator that I mentioned is uh, the corporate insider sell to buy ratio. Um, so I track over a 12 month time period. Um, and in this, my ratio is different than some you might see that include 10% owners. You know, if you become, if you own 10% of the, the stock outstanding in a company, you technically become an insider and have to file your trades. I don't find that trading as valuable as just officers and directors at these companies. And so I isolate them. And when you see that sell to buy ratio, it's, it's almost identical to this other indicator that I mentioned, which is, you know, the dollar interest rates and oil prices. Um, and in into late 2021, we saw that sell to buy ratio just go off the charts. The in, amount of insider selling was humongous. Um, we saw, you know, Jeff Bezos unload just tons of stock. I mean, Elon's been selling all the way down, but you've had very little insider buying as well. Um, and that's one indicator that I'm watching closely to see for, you know, more sustainable uh, stock market lows. I'd love to see corporate insiders come in and start buying their own shares. They're not doing that. They're not doing that. You know, at every every good, even the good buy the dip opportunities over the last 10 years, you've seen insider buying pick up at the lows. We haven't really seen that at all this time. So that 2021, uh, late 2021 selling tells me 
that we, and, you know, and it, it, it's interesting that it lines up almost perfectly with this other indicator saying the, the, the latter half of this year is, is when we need to be worried about the economy and corporate earnings. Now, once, once we see those indicators reverse, we see tons of insider buying, we start seeing um, you know, the dollar you know, roll over even harder than it has, interest rates come down. We haven't seen interest rates come down at all yet. And, and oil prices come down, usually by way of recession. That Those three things, and paired with some insider buying, will tell us that the next two years are going to be much more bullish than the past two. We haven't seen any of those things yet. So, you know, to me, the leading indicators aren't aren't at all close to confirming the idea that we're seeing an important bear market low. Okay. So, um, again, we'll get to the market in in your portfolio positioning in a little bit. But um, yeah. on the economy side of things, you know, from everything you're saying, it just sounds like you're saying we got to prepare for recession um, likely this year. Uh, and I think maybe you said middle. Uh, this year or Q3 of this year? Is that sort of your expected timing right now of, of when it's sort yeah, of, I mean, we're it, not arguing it, about it anymore. We're we're all agreeing we're in one. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, those indicators have kind of a two-year lead, which is, you know, kind of a rough, you know, probably create a six-month window for it. So I'd say that's the second half of this year. Uh, it's kind of what those things are pointing to. So third, fourth quarter. Okay. And, and between now and then, um, you know, we, we, GDP actually wasn't bad in Q4. It, GDP now numbers are above two, they're like two and a half percent or something like that. I think last time I saw them, um, China's obviously opening up a little bit. Um, are we just going to sort of like, you know, sputter along, maybe even have some little false hope here, you know, maybe a long kiss goodnight on economic growth as well? <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously the reopening of China and and you know is is a is a bullish factor for the global economy, although it's not been driven by the same factors that have typically driven you know global growth. It's more Chinese consumer led uh, than kind of uh, infrastructure construction types of things. But um, you know, and then I think there's been some seasonal factors too, right? Where the weather's been warmer than usual, and that's you know helped. Um, a lot of these, uh, you know, retail sales and, and things, but, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I am not, like I said, I'm not an economist. I'm not, <laughs> I, I can't forecast quarter to quarter GDP. I just know that there is risk of a, of a, a, a very weak second half. Now I would point out too, that right. The stock market is a discounting mechanism. And as companies or uh, continue to tell us, right? I mean, we saw the worst earnings guidance, you know, since the GFC, um, you know, in this last quarter. Uh, we have companies like Microsoft, and, and and we can talk about big tech because I think that's an important issue. But you know, Satya Nadella saying the next two years are going to be really difficult um, for for the industry. Um, you know, when you pay attention to those kinds of things, that's all confirmation of these macro. Kind of indicators that I'm pointing to, and that's that's important to have that kind of anecdotal confirmation from some of the most important companies in the market. So, um, you know, I, I I just think that everything's pointing to that second half weakness. Um, you know, how we get there, I have no idea. I, I think that you know a lot of people were looking at the 2008 analog for you know price analog in terms of you know you know what the market's going to do. I think it's very unlikely we have another type of financial crisis. The banking system's a lot safer. You ask somebody like Steve Eisman, he's like, you know, the, we're not going to have another <laughs> another financial crisis. The banks are uh, in in much better shape, not nearly as leveraged as they were. We don't have 
the type of uh, problems in housing like we did, uh, you know, 15 years ago. So, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, it's going to be something different this time. But you know, generals like to fight the last war, so right. to speak, and so people are expecting if we're going to have something, it's going to be, it's going to look like the GFC. I think it looks more like 2001 uh recession. Okay, and and you know, the 2001 recession, um, it, it wasn't as systemic as what we saw in 2028, but it still hurt a lot of industries. So let's let's talk about big tech for a second, but I, I do wanna preface it by saying, uh, I, I've been you know, talking a lot about the, the layoff risk um, that a recession would bring. And one of the reasons why I do that on this channel is just to keep our eyes focused on the human cost of, of a recession. It's not just stock prices go down. It's oftentimes that millions of people lose their jobs and they have real problems at, at that point in time. And some people, you know, to date have been quick to dismiss the layoffs that we've seen because a lot of them have happened in tech and they've just said, oh, those are the, you know, big bloated tech companies. They can afford to shed these these people. Um, they just overstaffed and it's not really a contagion yet. But we're seeing more and more examples as the year progresses here of many other companies and, and many other industries laying people off. Uh, uh, Walmart and Home Depot uh, just released um, bad earnings results and forward guidance. Um, so, you know, we're seeing retail really begin to take a hit here too, um, which I think is much more concerning because uh, yeah. it really shows on a broad-based level uh, that there's weakness in consumer spending, which we all know is 70% of GDP at this point in time. So let, let's get into big tech, but I, I just wanted to sort of set the table here that uh the the issues that we might just talk about here in big tech are not going to be unique and limited to big tech. Well, one of the the macro themes that I'm paying close attention to, I think uh, Home Depot um, and, and Walmart. I mean, Walmart has been raising you know its starting wage dramatically over the last few years. Home Depot announced that they're going to uh, invest a billion dollars into um, uh, wages and and these types of things going forward. So I, I think. One of the themes, macro themes to, to keep a close eye on is over the past, you know, 30, 40 years, we've seen the labor share of income drop dramatically to record right. lows, right? Corporate profits off the charts, right? Especially through the pandemic, just ridiculous. We've never seen such corporate profitability. I think demographically, we're, we're at, a, at an inflection point where we're going to start to see labor share structurally climb again. Um, just because the, 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 the proportion of the working population to the overall population is shrinking, right? Mm -hmm. We're an aging society and you have fewer people to do the same amount, do even more work as the population grows. That is very bullish for, for wages. Bullish, it, it, it's very inflationary and it's something that we haven't, we haven't had to deal with. Um, you know, uh, deglobalization only exacerbates that trend. But to get back to big tech, I think there's, you know, what, what reminds me of the 2001, 2002 bust is we had a kind of a Y2K phenomenon uh, during the pandemic, where if you remember back to Y2K, everybody thought, you know, of computers and servers and everything were going to stop working when the calendar rolled from 1999 to 2000. And so we had this huge upgrade cycle. Everybody had to go get new computers, new servers, you know, all this stuff turned out to be a non-event. But it created a huge boom in in product, in, you know, demand for products leading up to the 2000 stock market top, 
And then that boom left a huge vacuum of demand in its wake. And that was because right, we, we the... pulled all that demand forward into the previous millennium. Exactly. So everybody had upgraded whatever. Oh, I don't need another server for five years. So, you know, Intel, everybody just got, you know, hammered. Um, Sun Microsystems. I mean, the stock prices got destroyed because they became so overvalued, but also because the business, you know, growth went nowhere afterwards. And I think during the pandemic, we saw something very similar where all the work from home, whatever. I mean, we saw it with Peloton bikes. We also saw it with laptops. We saw everyone upgrade their cell phone. I'm working remotely. What do I need to do that? So there was this huge upgrade cycle. And right now we're seeing the, the, the flip side of that. But at the same time, I think what's different than 2001 to, uh, then, uh, and, and it's even, I think, more bearish, is when you think about these big tech stocks, think about the cloud and you think about digital advertising, whatever, I think it's helpful to think of them as uh, being in the picks and shovel business, right? We've had the Fed created a gold rush, lowered interest rates to zero, printed a bunch of money and enabled a bunch of zombie companies to live that otherwise shouldn't have. Uh, really you know, saw the startup uh, economy just boom like never before created all of this extra economic activity that that otherwise probably wouldn't have been there, pulling demand from the future and enabling a lot of these companies to thrive uh, when they otherwise wouldn't have. So I think it's important to think about how much of big tech's business, how much digital advertising, how much of the cloud catered to those industries and companies that are only sustainable in an extreme monetary environment. Right. But if we're now seeing a normalization of monetary policy and normalization of interest rates, how many of those zombies are going away? How much of the startup economy is going away? And I think what we saw with big tech's cash flows in the last couple of quarters is potentially a warning sign as to how big of a problem this is. For the last 10 years, we've seen you know, the aggregate cash flow of the, you know, the top eight big tech stocks. They make up 50% of the NASDAQ 100 and 25% of the S&P 500, these top, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, et cetera. Uh, we saw their cash flow fluctuate between, you know, zero and 20% growth for the last 10 years. In the first quarter, we saw uh, aggregate cash flow and all these companies drop to negative 25% year over year. That's, that hasn't happened in the last 10 years. And to me, that's a wake up call saying something has dramatically has changed yep. these companies. Now, like I said, part of it is the hangover from the pandemic. That's, you know, kind of a, a demand, uh, a unique demand situation. But I think part of it is, too, a lot of the digital advertising was maybe driven by, uh, you know, companies, DoorDash and Uber and a lot of these things that maybe aren't sustainable business models. And so that, you know, proportion of the advertising is potentially going away for good. At the same time, how much of the cloud business was driven by the startup ecosystem and saying, okay, we need to do all this stuff. We need to put it all in the cloud. Uh, Amazon Web Services, you know, catering to that. And how much of those businesses is going to, you know, go away permanently if we have a permanently higher interest rate and inflation environment? Right. So I, I think that, you know, we're potentially seeing the early stages of a paradigm shift for big tech, which is, uh, you know, the, the title of that report that I wrote was the end of the gold rush. If we're seeing the end of the monetary gold rush, it has implications for the long-term cash flow growth of these big tech stocks. Great point. Um, and uh, I imagine then that maybe in the next cycle of the market, um, post-market correction, um, it might not just be 
you're not sure it's going to be the same playbook where all the money just goes back into the the big tech companies again. There there might be a new leading sector next time. And and that's the that's the lesson of bear markets, right? I mean, I I can't in my personal experience and reading through market history, I don't know of a major bear market uh, that didn't result in a change in leadership from the prior bull market to the next bull market. You know, these things go in cycles and it's, it comes back to the capital cycle, right? When you uh, when you have a, a sector that is the focus of tons of capital going in, returns for that sector come down for a long period of time, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's overinvestment, malinvestment, you create lower returns for a prolonged period of time, right? We saw this in energy, uh, in you know, right in the wake of the financial crisis, tons of you know, all the energy companies, fracking companies, are able to borrow money really cheaply. They invested in in supplies, right? It was oil supplies boomed, and they had this major bust. You know, for for almost the last ten years, really. I mean, from 2014 until uh, you know, to 2020, we had a really painful uh, capital cycle where energy was starved of capital for a long period of time that created you know, a strain on supplies, which we're now dealing with in the energy mm-hmm. sector, which will probably create a secular bull market for these stocks for a period of time. Um, but you really, what, you know, what set the stage for the bull market in, in technology over the last 10, 15 years was the technology bust. And they were all starved for capital right for a period of time from 2002 3 4 5 to 2009 10 they were these companies were starved for capital uh through that whole period so that created the wonderful returns that we had over the last 10 12 years now we're seeing you know we had with like the startup ecosystem and all these things there was so much money look at softbank right so much money poured into so many different companies that that returns are not going to just be terrible for one year they're going to be poor for a number of years, I think, for these sectors. Okay. So it sounds like you would say um, if somebody's got heavy exposure to big tech or some of these sectors, uh, that they should perhaps use this long kiss goodnight to reduce exposure there, you know, try to capture the gains that are there and and prepare for both the down cycle and, and, and maybe shifting to a different horse in the next up cycle. Absolutely. And that's why I point out their weight in the indexes. Like I said, those eight stocks are 50% of the NASDAQ 100. They're 25% of the the S&P 500. So if you're a passive investor today, you're massively overweight big tech. Um, And so, you know, I I know the whole point of passive investing is to not think about these things. But uh, I I think, you know, if if you are an investor who thinks that thinking about these things is important, then there's there. I think there are alternatives uh, that are close alternatives to passive that are much more effective ways um, to 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 invest still in a diversified and low cost way. One of those is uh, fundamental indexing. Uh, Research Affiliates has come up with uh, the best alternative to passive investing that I've seen, which is let's create an index, but instead of using market cap weighting, let's weight companies based on their sales, their book value, these fundamental uh, things that, uh, that make sense. And it's systematically means that you're going to underweight overvalued companies and you're going to over or overweight undervalued companies. Um, and if you just look at the top holdings 
in the research affiliates fundamental index compared to the S&P 500 is dramatically different. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, that, that's a, a very good alternative for a lot of investors. That's pretty fascinating. It's called fundamental indexing? Yes. Okay. Oh, that's super cool. Um, all right. And we are getting to the investing part of this conversation, yeah. folks, I promise. There are one or two other quick macro things that I'd like to ask you, and then we'll get into the, sure. the market outlook part. Um, so uh, just getting back to layoffs for a second, because again, that that's, a, that's, I think, one of the true measures of the human cost of a recession. Uh, I know you're still prognosticating and looking into your crystal ball as best you can see. Um, but what sort of magnitude do you put on your expectations for layoffs? Um, should we get the recession that you think we're we're most probable to get from here? You know, it, it's a good question. I think we sh we should probably already start seeing it. Uh, you know, there there are a bunch of unique factors, um, and this ties into the inflation, uh, you know, discussion too, where we're seeing you know housing is is. Right, activity has dropped off a cliff, but we're right. not. And that's where seeing, I was going next. So just blend yeah, that right in. <laughs> but we're not seeing the layoffs uh, in housing and, and construction, and I don't know what that's related to. I know we have a structural, sh you know, shortage of housing, um, and so maybe a lot of the home builders are reluctant to uh, let go of people and then have to rehire them back, you know, later on. I think also the, there's this reshoring trend, um, which is important to pay close attention to. In addition to the the massive infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, program that you know that we have, uh, you know, that uh, over the next few years, and we just don't have enough. Uh, I mean, I, I think Financial Times um, estimated we have, you know, we need five hundred thousand more uh, construction employees just to fulfill the infrastructure uh, plans that we have over the next few years. Yep, so sorry to interrupt, uh, 546,000 to be specific, because yes. I, I pulled that chart off of your Twitter feed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are these dynamics, right, where you have, you know, all else being equal, the, the, the pain in housing should have already resulted in, in layoffs and things. And the fact that home builders aren't doing it uh, is an important sign. It could be related to infrastructure, could be related, related to reshoring. You know, maybe you just repurpose a lot of these people towards, you know, building semiconductor production, you know, plants and, you know, these other types of things that, uh, you know, bridges and things that we need, we need work on. Um, I, I don't know, but uh, so I, I don't know how the unemployment picture plays out. I know that a lot of indicators right now are pointing to rising unemployment. I also know that Jay Powell needs unemployment to go up in order right. to to address inflation. Right? And so he has been super clear about that. Wages. Yeah. yeah, he's been super clear about that for almost a year, right? Yeah. He's basically saying like, I mean, you translate what he's saying. He's saying, I'm declaring a war on jobs. They got these two mandates. Jobs are at near record lows and we have this wicked big gap between job openings and applicants and you know my job is to bring demand down and one of my measurements is going to be closing that gap meaning i'm, I'm going to be destroying jobs right yeah and he can't come out and say that directly but that's essentially what he's saying is yeah he's got as close to that i think as he's allowed to say <laughs> right absolutely absolutely so you know i don't know how exactly how that plays out i know that uh you know a lot of this, you know, comes back to to corporate earnings and corporate investment. And when you look at, you know, the the, the small business um, readings and things like that, it all points to profits, corporate profits being pinched, 
that is going to put uh, you know, a pinch on corporate investment. They're going to say, okay, we're going to back off on investing in different things, whatever. That is why we're seeing these layoffs because you know, we're seeing um, you know, the cloud business slow dramatically, right? So Amazon doesn't need so many more people to go build these data centers and, and all these kinds of things. And so I think this plays out like a normal cycle, but there are some unique characteristics that are those inflationary dynamics of reshoring of production and things that kind of throw a wrench into it and make it make it different. Yeah, it, it's super interesting. And obviously, the more people who get laid off, the the harder consumer spending gets impacted because people either don't have the income or they're afraid of losing their income, right? So they're tightening their belts. Yeah. Um, uh, let me connect a few dots here. I think you're saying, look, if you work for a paycheck for a living, you should probably start doing some game planning now of just what would I do in case my hours got reduced or I got laid off or whatever, right? You're nodding as I'm saying this. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, like uh, there are like the, the the reshoring factor is interesting. And there, there's there's two articles I pulled from some of your recent writings. Um, one was a, a an article um, that said that uh, Kyocera, which is a, a, a well-known Japanese corporation, um, has come out with the, the statement that China is no longer viable as the world's factory. Um, wages have gone up. Uh, and uh, given everything that's going on in China, it's getting more and more difficult to export from China to other places, right? At the same time, the world is like the US is saying, hey, we don't want to have all of our manufacturing done in China anyways, for a variety of reasons, we're going to start pulling that home. A, that is inflationary, like you said, right? So that is going to contribute perhaps to keeping real uh, interest rates negative for a prolonged period of time. Um, but it's also just going to continue to crimp uh, profit margins at corporations, and it's going to crimp consumer budgets because things are going to cost more as a result. The wage input is going to be higher. Um, but you have, you know, uh, the spending that's being done kind of at the federal level, right? Those, those infrastructure bills that are going to need people to build that stuff. So that is going to support some part of the economy here. What's interesting is in the construction world is, I don't think that that's good for residential housing. In fact, I think it's probably even bad for residential housing to a certain extent because they're for, for the the building that will happen. You know, even if it's reduced, the labor cost for that's going to be higher still because they're competing with the government, right? <laughs> the government sweet contracts out there. You know, most yeah. construction workers are going to say, "I'd much rather build the the fab plant because I get paid a much higher wage than you know Pulte Homes is going to pay me," right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and and I think these are the, the secular forces of inflation. And when you start to talk about them and think about them, you realize maybe Jay Powell has no hope, right, in addressing these issues. When you really think that the biggest, uh, you know, I, I think the two biggest disinflationary forces of the past 30, 40 years were demographics and globalization. globalization right? yeah. We had, you know, especially after the financial crisis, right? people's finances were were decimated, right? You had, they lost money in the stock market, they lost money in their housing values went down. So you had tons of baby boomers that stayed in the workforce longer than they intended because they had to rebuild their investment accounts, their savings accounts, they had to, they had to hope that their value of their home went up. And so the labor market stayed bigger than it otherwise would have been as they all stayed in the labor force, right? And that right. was an important- but, but helped by monetary policy, right? By yeah. keeping interest rates so cheap, it let economic activity bloom, 
right? Yeah. So, and then when you know the Fed printed you know tons of money and real estate and stock market went through the, the roof and you know a couple of years ago, they all said, "Hey, thank you very much. I can retire yeah. now." So they all left the labor force, right? And said, "My retirement account has been you know made whole again, if not you know doubled, tripled, whatever. My value of my house is at record you know <laughs> you know highs." I can afford to retire. We left the labor force. And that that kind of, you know, cyclical dynamic, I think, hid the fact that the labor force was structurally shrinking relative to the overall size of the population. At the same time, you know, since the, you know, early 80s, whatever, we've been shipping jobs to China. That has boosted corporate profits. They've said, we don't need, you know, unionized workers here in the U.S. anymore, right? We can we can uh, ship, you know, production over to China yep. and and save, you know, uh, cut our costs in half. Um, that trend is now over, and that was an important, you know, point by you know Kiyosera pointing out that you know the the cost of, of uh, produ producing in in China has now gone up so much that it's really not as attractive as it used to be. And there's all kinds of political problems now and supply chain problems potentially that uh you know you you risks that you take by by doing that and so you know the the fact that globalization is done and this demographic shift is happening at the same time means that secular inflation trends have reversed from being disinflationary to inflationary and you know that that has nothing to do with monetary policy uh, what monetary policy did was by, you know, shooting M2 to the moon for the first time the, by the, 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 the most dramatic, uh, you know, moonshot we've seen in since, you know, World War II is they threw like the monetary uh, fuel onto this already, you know, uh, macro uh, inflationary fire. Uh, and, and so it's, you know... May you live in interesting times is is uh, a, a you know, famously a, a Chinese curse, yep. um, and I think we are cursed to live in uh, interesting times today in in regard to a lot of this stuff. Um, all right. Well, look, um, so many more threads I'd love to pull with you on the macro side, but I'm just looking at the time. Um, we'll just have to save them for for next time. Um, let's go over to the market outlook section. I guess real quick before we do, Jesse, it, unfair not to give you any time to talk about it, but is there any other major macro issue we haven't touched on yet that you think is just worth people having on their radars? You know, I think, you know, the the one that I would, that I try and emphasize, is, you know, are these big tech issues, because I think the popularity of passive investing has, has you know, gone so large in recent years. I think people don't necessarily appreciate that uh, they're making a huge bet on on these big tech stocks, and um, you know that's worked great for for ten years or so. Uh, but I don't know. I don't. I don't think that's going to be a great bet over the next ten. Okay. All right. Well said. All right. Well, look. Now we're finally at the long-awaited market outlook um, point. So <clears throat> I got to imagine that if you're expecting a a bad recession or or at least a, <clears throat> a material recession by mid-year Q3, uh, that at some point, uh, the the currently somewhat, um, you know, overly sanguine stock market is going to get the memo, right? And is going to say, all right, you know what, we, we, we were really hoping that we were kind of returning to salad days and that Powell was going to pivot soon and the, the uniform, unicorns and rainbows were going to emit forth. Probably not going to happen now. I guess we got to start repricing 
for what the, the macro data is now showing us is probably rougher times ahead. Um, so, um, when, well, um, what do you expect the markets to do over the rest of this year? Over the rest of this year, I, I think... Our interview with Jesse will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And don't forget that Wealthian's online conference is now less than one month away. Lock in the early bird price discount before it goes away by registering for it at Wealthion.com conference. And finally, if the challenging macro and market outlooks that Jesse has detailed in this interview have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends, risks, and opportunities that Jesse's mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our interview with Jesse Felder.